Welcome, brothers and sisters, to this edition of the 80 Prophecy Report, where we review current news and events and their connection to biblical prophecy. I'm your host, Matthew Shanshay. If you want to keep up on the latest prophetic events, make sure to join Amazing Discovery's bi-weekly newsletter and hit subscribe to stay informed for the times that we live in. You can join for free just by heading over to welcome.amazingdiscoveries.org. In part one of this episode, we learned that Pope Francis and Antonio Gutierrez shared an almost identical agenda in their efforts to obtain global unity with the goal of establishing a global parliamentary assembly based on a form of Marxist communism. We reviewed what the Bible teaches about this end-time power that attempts to bring the world together under a false unity movement and what the consequences are for the individual. Now let's continue our investigation where we left off. In this episode, we'll look at the director of the World Health Organization and the head of the Jesuit Order to see how these groups work together to bring about the global communist agenda. And we'll discover what tactic is used to transition the world to this system by using social revolutions to bring about drastic societal changes. Governments must give the strongest support to the multilateral effort to fight the virus led by the World Health Organization whose appeals must be fully met. Given that the head of the UN is directing the world to follow every recommendation by the World Health Organization, we should look at the background of its director. Who is Tedros Adhanom? This question has come up recently from various members of the U.S. House and Senate who have made public calls for action to be taken to remove Adhanom from the World Health Organization based on his strong historical support for communism. An article from BBC News states, Dr. Tedros became a member of the Tigray People's Liberation Front. The article from KPRC Radio connects Tedros's past to the historically violent communist organization. It states, During his time in Ethiopia, the World Health Organization chief was a member of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, a violent communist revolutionary party which was listed as a terrorist organization by the U.S. government in the 90s and is still listed as a terrorist organization by the Global Terror Database today. Adenom was more than just a casual member of this organization, reaching the status of executive committee member and ranking as high as the sixth most powerful member of the communist organization. An article titled The Crimes of Tedros Adenom gives an in-depth look at Adenom's past citing the fact that he's the first ever World Health Organization director without a medical degree, and lays out a past more in line with a political career during his 10-year reign as Ethiopian Minister of Health than that of a medical doctor. It states that Adenom took part in denying aid to political dissidents, covering up epidemics, 
facilitating systemic discrimination and human rights abuses. Refusal of emergency health care by his own Ministry of Health workers. He led a crackdown on journalists and government opponents in his country, where he personally negotiated the return of those dissidents with foreign countries for sentencing in Ethiopia. Is this the resume of a noble healthcare professional with the people's well-being at heart, or that of a corrupt politician that happens to be in a medical position of authority? The article continues, Tedros, of course, takes every chance he can to praise the good governance of China, and given the human rights record of the People's Republic, it's no wonder he likes them so much. From projects like media propaganda centers, mass relocations, and social credit-style scorecards, Ethiopia's governance in many ways resembles a carbon copy of the Chinese authoritarian model, complete with a one-party state system and focus on profits over human rights. It continues, Ethiopia, until very recently, remained one of the world's worst human rights violators, receiving a score of 19 out of 100 on the Human Freedom Index for 2018. So how does a man with a record like Tedros Adhanom become director of the World Health Organization? The article's author answers this question by stating, It's quite simple, really. The World Health Organization has been riddled with scandal after scandal for some time now. Facing almost no rise in budgets during the 1990s, the WHO turned towards the corporate sector for additional funding. And by 2008, corporate donations made up 80% of the organization's budget. The article goes on to state, that the role that large drug companies played in shaping global health policy created a serious conflict of interest on the one hand to improve the company's public image, but on the other hand to protect their financial interests. This led to cases like lobbying to weaken patent laws for new drugs in India and blocking laws in South Africa that attempted to make HIV treatment more accessible. But there was one key player in the rise of Adenome to director of the World Health Organization. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation played a large role in promoting Tedros. After their large investments into healthcare programs in Ethiopia, which Tedros had facilitated, the foundation was keen to promote similar programs on a global level and donated billions to the World Health Organization towards this end. And it looks as though others in the U.S. government have taken notice of Adenome's overwhelmingly clear communist convictions. On April 9th, State Representative Liz Cheney made a unique accusation against the head of the World Health Organization, stating that Adenome believes in the governmental structure of communism, stating the fact that he, quote, has been touting the Chinese Communist Party line from the beginning of this, tells you that he absolutely should go. On March 31st, Senator Rick Scott again stated the same accusations against Adenome and the World Health Organization, showing a heavily slanted political view towards communism and specifically China. Senator Scott called for a congressional investigation into the World Health Organization, 
and questioned whether the organization should continue to be funded since it's engaged in, quote, helping communist China. Adenome's past shows undeniable ties to communism, but his ascension to director of the World Health Organization was designed to carry out a very specific purpose in transitioning the world towards this way of communist thinking. And this is becoming a key authority in taking control of the world's healthcare systems. All roads should lead to universal health coverage. I will not rest until we have met this, he told the World Health Assembly shortly before his election as World Health Organization chief. Now that we have an understanding of his background and beliefs, let's hear from Adenom himself as he reports on his encouragement that world leaders are becoming more supportive of his goal to create a universal health system that mirrors Ethiopia and China in socializing healthcare worldwide. It's also an opportunity to reaffirm that people-centered primary care must be the foundation of our efforts to achieve universal health coverage. And also we have signed new agreements with the World Bank, UN Environment, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and others. We have started a new process of engaging with civil society organizations to amplify our collective voices. It's the collective voice which is more potent than the fragmented one. And we finished the year with the UHC Forum in Tokyo, where we witnessed unprecedented political commitment in support of our vision of health for all. My time in these three countries reminded me that universal health coverage is not a pipe dream. It's a reality in many places. Each country I visited was at a different point, point in its journey, but they have a common destination. This year, Universal Health Coverage will be the theme both for World Health Day and the World Health Assembly because I have seen a degree of commitment that I didn't actually see would happen during the G20 and my other meetings with leaders, their commitment to push for UHC. I'm more convinced of that, more convinced than ever that UHC is not only the best investment in a healthier world, it's also the best investment in a safer world. Adenome makes it clear that his goal is universal health coverage worldwide. And while this sounds like a noble and needed service, most don't realize that the system he desires is the same that has led to the healthcare crisis in Venezuela, a country with universal health coverage, where critical healthcare services and vital medicines are rationed out at the will of the state, leaving many in desperate need with nowhere to turn, and leaving the state to make determinations on who lives and who dies. Adenome has made several appeals for world leaders not to politicize the health crisis, yet in reviewing his own press conferences, all one finds are political statements. Recently, he made calls for the United States and China to put aside their differences and unite. Let's take a listen and ask ourselves, does this sound like a medical doctor guiding the public based on sound medical research, or that of a politician with politically motivated goals and agendas? 
no using COVID for political punch, the United States and China should come together and fight this dangerous enemy. They should come together to fight it. And the rest of G20 should come together to fight it. And the rest of the world should come together to, to fight it. We will have many body bags in front of us if we don't behave. What are we doing? Is this not enough? It's more than enough. And then second, honest solidarity at global level and honest leadership from the US and China. Those who have differences should join hands to fight it. And then the G20 and every, everybody has to come together. Lack of unity, please prepare. If you don't believe in unity and don't do unity, please prepare for the wars to come. What's particularly interesting is this form of rulership seems to be the government of choice, not just for Gutierrez and Adenom, but also for major global figure Arturo Sosa, superior general of the Jesuit order. An article from 1 Peter 5, a Catholic publication states, Pope Francis has been planting Marxists throughout the church, including at the top of the troubled religious order to which he belongs. In 2016, the Jesuits, with the blessing of Pope Francis, installed as its general superior a Venezuelan, Arturo Sosa Abascal, whose communist convictions have long been known. It goes on to state, Sosa has written about the, quote, Marxist mediation of the Christian faith, arguing that the church should, quote, understand the existence of Christians who simultaneously call themselves Marxists and commit themselves to the transformation of the capitalistic society into a socialist society. Sosa, as the head of the Jesuits, is known as the Superior General, a title only given within a militaristic organization. To give an idea of the general mindset of this order, consider this quote from Michelangelo Tambellini, 14th Superior General of the Society of Jesus, where he states, from this chamber I govern not only Paris, but to China. Not only to China, but to all the world, without anyone to know how I do it. A brief look at the history of this order shows a resoundingly clear picture of what type of fruit the Jesuits and its general produce. Let's consider just one quote from Napoleon Bonaparte, the famous French military leader who during the French Revolution stripped the papacy of its power and removed the Pope from his seat of authority, witnessing firsthand countless atrocities in his country and around the world at the hands of the Jesuits. He states, The Jesuits are a military organization, not a religious order. Their chief is a general of an army, not the mere father abbot of a monastery. And the aim of this organization is power. Power in its most despotic exercise. Absolute power, universal power, 
power to control the world by the volition of a single man. The general of the Jesuits insists on being master sovereign over the sovereign. Wherever the Jesuits are admitted, they will be masters, cost what it may. Their society is, by nature, dictatorial, and therefore, it is the irreconcilable enemy of all constituted authority. Every act, every crime, however atrocious, is a meritorious work if committed for the interests of the society of the Jesuits or by the order of the general. The agenda of this order is and always has been global, and like the Knights of Columbus, they demand a vow of perfect obedience to any superiors. In the book, The Spiritual Exercises of St. Ignatius, it shows what type of obedience is required of all who are in the order. On page 141, item 13, it states, If we wish to be sure that we are right in all things, we should always be ready to accept this principle. I will believe that the white I see is black if the hierarchical church so defines it. This is the definition of blind obedience, meaning every member of the order is required to provide blind obedience to their current superior general, whom they call their ghostly father, Arturo Sosa. Understanding this provides a key to unlocking what type of mindset and governance is favored by this powerful order and by the Pope himself, the first Jesuit Pope in history. An article from the Jesuit magazine America offers a peek into what this order has to say about this type of government and its relationship to the Church, connecting the communist thinking of Engel and Marx directly to Pope Francis and his teachings in his encyclical Laudato Si. It states, In fact, although the Catholic Church officially teaches that private property is a natural right, this teaching also comes with the provision that private property is always subordinate to the common good. So subordinate, says Pope Francis, in a truly radical moment in Laudato Si, that the, quote, Christian tradition has never recognized the right to private property as absolute or invaluable, and has stressed the social purpose of all forms of private property. Something like this is paralleled in the Communist Manifesto, when Marx and Engels underscore that abolishing private property means abolishing not personal property or the kinds of things an artisan or farmer might own, but the amassed property held by the rich, which divides human beings into antagonistic classes of people, in other words, the kind of private property that most of us do not have. This line of thinking goes not just for private property, but also for human rights, freedom of speech, liberty of conscience, and a whole host of fundamental individual rights all of which would be destroyed in the name of the common good in this form of political and religious thinking. To understand the source of this historical financial and social transformation, we must understand the Jesuit concept of liberation theology. Many theologians in the 60s and 70s adopted Marx's ideas, baptized them with biblical stories and terminology, and formed liberation theology. They claimed that Jesus came to free the poor from oppression. Class struggle is the basic dynamic of social life. To them, poor countries had been made 
and kept deliberately poor and dependent on the oppressors, the capitalists. And America is the chief culprit. Liberation theologians, the whole uh, left of the Catholic Church, are people who think identically the way Marxists think. Um, they think it is their work to save the poor instead of the work of a of a divinity. They were arguing for an economic salvation instead of a theological salvation. Um, the, the, the bottom line is still a socialistic interpretation of, uh, of the world. Somehow socialism was supposed to be the answer to the poor and uh, capitalism was supposed to be the antithesis of the gospel. Liberation theology is at its core built on Marxian economics. If Christians don't get involved in the revolutionary struggle and respond to the poor's yearning for liberation, they become the oppressors. Since Jesus speaks to the poor, Christians not committed to the revolution have turned their backs on Christ. In liberation theology, commitment to the revolution is essential to what it means to be a Christian. It is difficult to, to imagine two worldviews that are more at odds than Christianity and Marxism. Liberation theology is a, is a surrender of almost everything that the Christian church has stood for and a total embracing of whatever version of Marxism happens to appeal to these people at the time. A new type of Marxism is moving forward, neo-Marxism. For these new Marxists, Marxism is not a system of sociology or economics, but a philosophy of human liberation. Neo-Marxism, also known as humanistic Marxism, is commonly advocated by the religious left. Let's review the basis of this theology, as it is the religion and theology of the coming one world system. It's a theology born out of Latin America. Its foundation does not have its basis in scripture, but on the oppression of the materially poor, making all who hold wealth evil. It's a theology that holds the belief that the church is the driving force behind liberating billions of poor people and driving a change for moral order. This theology justifies and even mandates the use of any and all means to accomplish its goal. 
What is its goal? They seek to become the champion of the struggling class with the goal of overthrowing the predominating capitalist class. And in doing this, changing the focus from the individual study of the Word of God to a more community focus with worldwide group acceptance of social and moral standards with no need for individual understanding of the scriptures. Liberation theology is not based on Christ, but on looking at people, how the people fare here and now in their socioeconomic realities. The people become the voice of God, not Jesus Christ. Distinguishing good from evil is no longer an individual issue, but a community issue. And if you belong to certain groups who do not uphold this thinking, then you are considered evil. This thinking states sin is not primarily personal. It is social and almost exclusively the injustice and oppressions of capitalism. The foundation of this theology is pushed despite the fact that Christ never acted or preached on socioeconomic theories of inequality, nor did he discuss political opposition between classes. He never raised a revolution to change the governments or ever preach any sort of political liberation, nor did he show any preference for economic rich or poor, having associated with both rich and poor in preaching the way of salvation for all. Liberation theology is a tree that has produced much fruit, but what kind of fruit has it produced? As one ex-Jesuit priest said, the aim of both is to establish a socio-political system affecting the economies of nations by a thoroughgoing redistribution of Earth's resources and goods, and in the process, to alter the present governmental systems in vogue among nations. Let's look at some of the statements from these men that show us what liberation theology looks like in real life. And the growing divide between rich and poor go against the sense of the entire world as a single family. The growth of a materialistic, quote, throwaway culture has in fact made us increasingly indifferent to the poor and to the most defenseless members of our human family. For many of the poorest in the world, if they are told to stay indoors or to practice social distancing, this means they cannot earn their daily wage. Reminding Jesuits to walk with the poor, the outcast of the world, those whose dignity has been violated in a mission of reconciliation and justice. While citizens across Europe, the U.S., and other wealthy nations take sensible steps to batten down the hatches and protect the vulnerable in their communities, governments need to act on what's happening in other parts of the world. The hard truth is they will be failing to protect their own people if they do not act to help the poorest countries protect themselves. Gutierrez shares this theology in stating, it is the most vulnerable, women and children, people with disabilities, the marginalized, displaced, and refugees who pay the highest price during conflict and who are most at risk of suffering devastating losses from this disease. 
Now that we know what this theology teaches and what it sounds like, let's listen to the UN chief once more and see if a clear agenda stands out. Global solidarity is not only a moral imperative, it is in everyone's interests. This is not a banking crisis, and indeed banks must be part of the solution. And it is not an ordinary shock in supply and demand, it is a shock to society as a whole. But let's not forget, this is essentially a human crisis. Most fundamentally, we need to focus on people, low-wage workers, small and medium enterprises, the most vulnerable. And that means wage support, insurance, social protection, preventing bankruptcies and job loss. And that also means designing fiscal and monetary responses to ensure that the burden does not fall on those who can least afford it. The recovery must not come on the backs of the poorest, and we cannot create a legion of new poor. A number of countries are taking up social protection initiatives, such as cash transfers and universal income. We need to take it to the next level to ensure support reaches those entirely dependent on the informal economy and countries less able to respond. In addition, G20 leaders have taken steps to protect their own citizens and economies by waiving interest payments. We must apply the same logic to the most vulnerable countries in our global village and alleviate their debt burden. The IMF, the World Bank and other international financial institutions play a key role and we must refrain from the temptation of resorting to protectionism. This is the time to dismantle trade barriers and re-establish supply chains. As people's lives are disrupted, isolated and upturned, we must prevent this pandemic from turning into a crisis of mental health, and young people will be most at risk. We must ensure that lessons are learned and that this crisis provides a watershed moment for health emergency preparedness and for investment in critical 21st century public services and the effective delivery of global public goods. On the surface, this theology looks to help refugees, the poor and defenseless, a theology in support of worker and genders rights. And this thinking would solve the world's problems by having rich nations uplift and balance the divide between the haves and the have-nots across the world. But while this theology may sound noble, a further study will show it is anything but. As one publication noted, the agenda is clear and it has nothing to do with protecting refugees or humanitarianism. Gutierrez and his fellow globalist socialist extremists are not fooling everyone. In Hungary, for example, Prime Minister Viktor Orban has blasted what he termed a quote, criminal conspiracy of internationalist fanatics. In essence, he has argued in multiple speeches that these globalist conspirators, based largely in European HQ in Brussels, were using mass Islamic immigration as a weapon to undermine Western civilization, Christendom, and the nation-state on the road toward what globalists often refer to as their New World Order. But when we understand the end goal of their preferred system of government and worship principles, a deeper study shows the true results of this thinking, and it shows a model that sets up the destruction of the middle class by skyrocketing unemployment and inflation. The elimination of independent wealth and private property rights and a replacement of democratic republics 
with a state-run government that dictates information, morality, and production of goods based on need as determined by the state. To see the Jesuit model playing out in real life and the system they desire for the whole world, we must look at China to understand the extent of the changes coming to our everyday lives. With the 14th Superior General stating his views of ruling China in the 16th century, what does the Church think of China today? An article from 2019 quotes a Catholic bishop stating that the Chinese are best at keeping the social doctrine of the Church. That is complete and total control over the individual and unilateral authority by the state. Bishop Marcelo Sanchez Sornando stated on February 6th that, quote, at this moment, those who best realize the social doctrine of the church are the Chinese. Sornando told Vatican Insider that he had recently visited China, where he says he found that, quote, the Chinese seek the common good, subordinate things to the general good. He goes on to say, I found an extraordinary China. What people do not know is that the central Chinese principle is work, work, work. As Paul said, he who does not work is he who does not eat. The bishop said that the People's Republic of China has, quote, defended the dignity of the human person and in the area of climate change is assuming a moral leadership that others have abandoned. let's take a look at what we've learned. Between Pope Francis, Antonio Gutierrez, Tedros Adhanom, and Arturo Sosa, three of the four all share one faith. All four share a long history of upholding the Catholic social teachings of common good and moral conduct we covered in the previous episode. All four are in positions of extreme influence in shaping societal affairs. All four share a long history of supporting a Marxist version of communism. The operation of the economy and society has started to shift to reflect the same attributes as those described in Marxist thinking. What would this look like in the real world setting? It would look like governments taking control of supply chains, commandeering private property for public use, and demanding suppliers make specific goods based on societal needs. The Protestant Reformation identified the papacy as the Antichrist power identified in the books of Daniel and Revelation. To understand how we know the Reformers correctly and unanimously identified Rome as the beast power of Revelation, check out The Twin Pillars of the Reformation by Walter Veit. Looking at the leaders of this little horn power, a clearer line of thinking starts to form in what the future might hold. And the picture it shows is a forming global church-state system, founded in Catholic teachings and enforced by a form of Marxist-Communist government. These statements are not meant to reveal individuals as much as they are to reveal powers and principalities that run this world, and to shine light at the spiritual wickedness in high places. These are simply observations meant to inform those who seek God and to desire to know the whole truth before it's too late. The Bible states the importance of revealing these things. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And to what intent is this done? To the intent that now, unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. All this is made known for the individual to heed this call. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. At its source, the movement for a global system of governance stems exclusively from the papacy, using its various secretive orders such as the Knights of Columbus and the internal militia of the church, the Jesuit order, who together are striving to instill a specific mindset for society that will fundamentally change every aspect of our lives. Many say that the papal system has faded in power and influence over the years, with various scandals and a seemingly wavering faithful following. Yet Revelation 13.3 shows us that, while it may appear this way, Rome's power will be restored to the level it once had, and that all the world will be affected. Revelation 13.3 states, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wandered after the beast. The Bible details a clear divide between the forces of good and the forces of evil throughout its sacred pages. It explains the perspective of Earth's final history from both sides of the aisle, and what it describes is a conflict that will affect everyone, meaning no one will be able to avoid making a clear and definitive choice for one of these two forces. Revelation 13.7 shows what this power will do and how many will be affected. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Revelation 13.8 gives us a culmination and true aim of this power and what the result will be. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The most important question a person can ask themselves now is what can I do about this? Get to know the God of the Bible the true Creator, and the Lord of the Sabbath for yourself. Colossians 1.16 For by Him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. The next thing to do is to develop a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. We must understand that God truly is in control by giving us the information we need to make informed decisions. Mark 13, 23 But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity, I am he that searches the reins and hearts, and I will give unto everyone according to your works. 
the most important thing we can do is pray. Not just pray for ourselves and for our loved one, but pray for our enemies. Matthew 5:44. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Thank you for joining. We hope you will share this message, knowing that even one seed of truth can blossom into a beautiful tree for the kingdom of God. May God bless you and keep you always in the name of Jesus.